Well, welcome back to another episode of Hunter's Wheelhouse. Today, I have a special guest with me from the UK. Her name is Miss Holly Barker. Hello, Miss Holly. How are you? Hello. I'm very good. Thank you. How exciting. <laughs> like, I'm so excited. I am bringing on someone from the UK that is a sport dog nutritionist. Now, how long Ooh. have you been doing this? About 10 years now. Woo. Um, yeah, a little while. Um, when I left the military, I became a nurse. And at the same time, the dog that I had, who had like, you know, seen seen me through leaving the military, seen me through doing my nursing degree, you know, that the she was getting old. Um, and so I took a real interest in nutrition because I just wanted her to live forever. Um, and it sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole, really. Um, and she was a border collie. Um, and so I spoke to nutritionists and they didn't really, they didn't really have my vibe. It was all a little bit pink and fluffy. Um, and the dogs that I, you know, my dog, she was a very stoic dog. She was a very hard dog. She wasn't fussy at all. And I just thought, mm, I feel like there isn't, I feel like there isn't a, a service that provides decent information for working dogs. Um, that makes sense that's attainable and I was like you know what I'll just I'll just do a degree all over again um so in in the UK a degree I think you leave high school with a degree over there don't you no with a high school education diploma and then you have to go to college to start getting your degrees right so this is this is what I've done so I've done three years at college I've just done that and so I was like Hmm. I've maybe wasted my time because now I want to change career and I want to be a canine nutritionist, but I just want to do it for sport dogs. And there was no education out there for that kind of career at all. So what I did was I just did it myself. So I structured it the same as how my nursing degree was. I um, I kind of set myself modules. So I learned about um, canine biology and then biochemistry um, and then food chemistry and so on and so forth. And then I practiced um, for free um, for about two years. So I picked people who were up and coming in various sports, worked with them, worked with their dogs, kind of fine-tuned what I do, um, and then went from there, really. So that's what I've done. Very fun. Very fun. So <laughs> let, me, let me ask you something that's very, very interesting. You, you have piqued my interest in, in a regard of, I saw something posted that said nutrition and scent come yeah. together. Can you please, yeah. please describe that for me? I am so interested in this. Do you want, do you want me to give you the, the hard science? The hard science, the facts, the, the truth behind science. it, because with coonhounds, it, it is strictly about scent. And so yes. for all owners, your beaglers that run rabbits, your squirrel hunters your coon hounds all kinds of things like that your sheep dog your working dogs that use noses and they need their noses tell us how important yeah. and why the science is important it's important because um you need to include the fact that scent is is an intrinsic part of very complicated neurology so you're not just dealing with the nose you're dealing with the brain and you're dealing with a sense that is set apart from other senses. So the way that scent works is it engages with different parts of the brain depending on what the scent is. So when you put a dog in a, an MRI scanner and look at its brain and give it different scents, those scents will light up different areas of the brain, which is fascinating. Um, so let's like fireworks. Give an example of, yeah, yeah really specific neurology. The other thing about it is scent, um, it can kind of bypass certain areas of the brain as well. So when you're dealing with a scent hound, you are dealing with a really superior neurology. And I watched a couple of your other videos and there's some really interesting people that you've had because they know the breed and they know what they're working for. Um, they know what they're breeding for, should I say. Um, and it's, it's just what you see throughout any kind of purpose-bred working dog. The ones that win everything, there's a, a parallel there, and that is that they have really good relationships with their handlers. And a part of that is emotional intelligence, which, again, comes down to neurology. 
So what you need to learn how to do is, is feed the brain well. And that's what I do. Um, I do I do the, the science for feeding the brain well. So where would you start with that? So the, one of the most important nutritional um, additives, if you like, for improving brain health is omega-3. Um, and that's that's fairly easy to do. You can do that with fish oil. Um, but with a scent hound, it's when you feed it that's important as well. And it's the type of oil that you feed. So the first thing with an omega-3 oil is there's no point giving it unless the rest of the diet has been balanced to make sure that when you give that omega-3 oil, that it's higher than the amount of omega-6s in the diet. Because if not, it's not going to work. It has to be higher. So first, when you look at the diet, you have to balance that out. The easiest way to do that is um, if you're feeding, um, say, a dry food and it's chicken-based, straight away you know that chicken is high in omega-3. So straight away, if, you, if your diet is chicken-based and if it's got maize in it as well, your omega-6 is going to be really high. So you're going to have to give quite a lot of usable omega-3. So there's that. Um, and you can add that as a daily part of the diet. Some people like to use salmon oil, but in your scent hounds, it's a bad idea. And the reason why is because most salmon oil that you get that's for giving to dogs is already oxidized. So it's that rancid fat. It smells really fishy. It's right. Quite- and I have noticed that, with, especially with salmon oil. Uh, mm-hmm. I have grabbed it and I'm like, whoa, that is really strong. And so I yeah, actually completely quit giving it to my dogs it's so interesting to hear you say the omega-3 and omega-6 because i am in the horse industry and been in it all my life so i know a lot about omegas so i have been well, giving my dog i started i started with racehorses really so my family so, yeah so, so growing up yeah. wow my family started in quarter horses racing quarter horses absolutely my dad was trainer of the year uh we had some very special things happen but one thing i noticed in it to touch on what you're saying here, mm-hmm. I have started giving a supplement called Comega, and I'm not sponsored yep. by them or nothing. Uh, this is just an honest opinion. <laughs> uh, it is very high in omega-3, very high in omega-6. I started giving it about a year and a half, two years ago with two puppies. Those mm-hmm. two dogs have made the best two dogs I have ever had. Yeah, and- you've got to start them on it young because of the brain development. They need that for brain development. And the other thing, um, nutrition-wise, that they need for that brain development um, is choline. And the best way to get that is from eggs. Oh. And obviously that 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 makes, in the brain, then that makes acetylcholine. Um, acetylcholine is what you need for, you know, those rapid-firing neurons. And so now, that the brain doesn't get tired. To serve eggs, what is your recommendation? I just chuck them in the bowl. <laughs> Perfect. Raw, throw them in there. Good to go. Just raw, throw them in. Um, there's some tenuous science about, you know, that the best thing to do is pour boiling water over them and leave them for 10 minutes. And then, but I really, I haven't got the time um, to, to, I just chuck them in. And most of us and have I, I don't like. <laughs> we're going to crack an egg. I don't, I don't like nonsense. Exactly. Just took the whole thing in. Um, so that's kind of a couple of things that with the neurology is important. Now, with the salmon oil, the reason why it's not a good idea to give that to your scent hound when we were talking about how stinky it is. Imagine how sensitive your dog's nose is. Correct. And you want them to be able to smell coons or squirrels or whatever it is. And they've had that in their mouth dogs don't have a mobile tongue so they can't clean that around from their mouth they heavily rely on passing the scent back and forwards between the palate and the back of the nose and the front of the nose and they can pass that through and back a few times to get exactly what the information that they need and if they have had any kind of strong smelling or or oxidized fats anywhere in their mouth the other thing is is it builds up a film So they need a clean mouth and they need to not have had any kind of oils that can get around their mouth a good kind of three hours before you want them to work. Mm. That is very interesting. I'm going to tell you why. Every time I, I take my dog to the woods, when he comes out of the box, I always make him drink fresh water. Yeah. And I've always told my buddy. Yes, ma'am, it is. And I, I and something else I really tell people, make sure they have a wet nose. 
Mm-hmm. If they have a wet nose, all that scent hits that wet nose. Yes, ma'am. If a dehydrated dog cannot compete. He cannot hang yeah. with a dog that is dehydrated and not produce enough saliva, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things that you can do to kind of help with that. So obviously I do nutrition, but I kind of I do I do the whole the whole well-being thing as well. Um with the scent hound and I know I know you love cheddar because I have been looking at your videos and you gave him a pop book from Donkey Donuts and made a suggestion that he should be sponsored by them. So yes, ma'am. You know, <laughs> hey, hey. he loves his pop I know <laughs> how much you love that dog. So me suggesting this to you is not going to be like oh too pink and fluffy. And um, massage their face. And this isn't even a joke. Um massage their face because can you hear my dogs kicking off yes ma'am they, they're just saying let's listen <laughs> they're going to start popping up in the background in that window like little jack in a box they're interested in the <laughs> they are interested in they don't one of them i mean they're border collies my dogs work sheep they're stock dogs but there's one of them i take her into the woods and she spends half of the walk on her back legs looking up she's obsessed with squirrels Squirrels. She just yeah. is. She loves them. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't have raccoons here. I want a pet one. Anyway, um, so where did we get up to? Cheddar and pup cups and oh, massage the face, right? Yes. So, what you were saying about a wet nose. Sometimes in your in your scent hounds, you know, the 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 they use a lot of forehead muscles, facial muscles, um, especially when they start getting tired. You know, they're really using all of their facial structures in order to get that scent, in order to do what they need to do. And just like any athlete, the muscle that they use the most needs looking after and they can get tired. Um, A facial massage helps with um, the tear ducts draining. And if the tear ducts are draining well, then you're going to have a nice wet nose as well. So you wouldn't have an athlete that's a runner and have them never get their calves massaged. You need to massage the face. It, and I know, I know that there will be people watching this going, "She's nuts! How ridiculous!" But it, it makes no, a ma'am. Difference. That's not that's <laughs> not crazy because I mean, I have severe sinus issues. I always have the pollens mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And Cheddar, my pride and joy, <laughs> Cheddar, he also has uh, sinus issues as well, and he drains and his eyes run and stuff like. It's just allergies. Mm-hmm. But I do constantly. I rub his nasal passages. And it does. It really helps. It does. I've heard, I had a vet tell me. Mm-hmm. She said, "Really massage his face. Re- always massage around the facial, you know, around the orbitals and stuff like that. Loosen it up." She said, "It'll help break it up." And I have found yeah. that I feel it's made a difference. And some people say, "Oh, you know, that's witchcraft." No, now you hear it, folks. It's really not. No. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's 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 helpful. Um. So. So, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that's helpful with the scent hounds. Um, in terms of research, th- there's one fairly interesting study. It's it's a bit mm, hit or miss, but still interesting. And that is that um, scent dogs, so say police dogs, airport dogs, drug sniffer dogs, um, when they consumed um, MCT oil, which is a medium chain triglyceride oil. Now, this is an oil that I use to fuel sporting dogs, not scent hounds, but sporting dogs, um, because it's really easily bioavailable. They get the energy from it easily, doesn't upset the pancreas. It's a good way to fuel a dog short term. So um, you give it them maybe an hour, half an hour before you want them to run, before you want them to perform, because it helps their brain work, helps them think because it crosses the blood brain barrier. I don't do that with um, scent hounds because this this study for police dogs said that I think it was something like 18% of them, if they had that, just basically couldn't really smell because Whoa. it's a neutral oil and it ne- yeah, neutralizes the scents across, across the palate. Wow. Um, so as well as having stinky oils being a bad thing or anything kind of too stinky that can sit around the mouth, um, MCT oil is, is quite specific in that it neutralizes scent. So you don't want that there either. Um, right. But what's interesting is I do have some folks. I'll be bringing on a gentleman here pretty soon. He also is a working dog. He won the world championship um, here in the States named Jared Lee. He mm-hmm. has working dogs. So then I, I have some folks that are watching to have a lot of working dogs. That is a good, good point for you folks out there that have working dogs and scent dogs stay away from that if you have scent hounds 
If you have working yeah. hounds, please listen to what this lady is saying. This might help you in your <laughs> big time tournaments. Because uh, there's some. And the thing is about the big time tournaments as well, that the really big competitions is what I do, the, you know, the things that I'm telling you, that they're small. But when you're at the highest level of a sport, whether it's with an animal or, or yourself, whatever the sport is, once you hit that higher level, the playing field really kind of plateaus. And what you're looking for is, is marginal gains. So sometimes I can give maybe. 10 things that I think will help your dog and you'll implement them. You may be only getting, I don't know, an extra one, two, five percent performance from any one of those things that you add. But when you're at the top level, it makes all the difference. It doesn't Absolutely. take much to get an edge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as an athlete, I, I rodeoed road bulls for a living for about 12 years. And, and I noticed one thing I had to, are you you really broken? uh, I broke to pieces, (laughs) (laughs) broke to pieces. But one thing I always learned is when you get up there towards the top echelon, it does, you kind of rise, rise, rise. And then there's a plateau. And when you hit that plateau, there is very significant differences in performance. And I noticed that doing yoga, Pilates, um, having the, uh, was pliability of your body yeah when you start introducing that you're gaining those little bitty gains and when you get those little gains that's what separates you from maybe the next dog or next man next to you mm-hmm. so it's very interesting mm-hmm. that you say that and not just the gains but the, the recovery as well being able to bounce back resilience correct um, and, and stamina that makes all the difference as well stamina so stamina right um so obviously i don't know a lot about uh training dogs um I had a little look. So they hunt for, is it three hours they hunt for? So we have about three different setups. You have some personal organizations out there that will go up to to three hours, but that's very few. The main is one hour, one hour and one half and two Mm -hmm. hours. So we try on a two hour hunt. We can call timeout just like in football or anything else. We can call a timeout. (laughs) And what folks don't understand in a two-hour hunt, they say it's a two-hour hunt. Sometimes that two-hour hunt with timeouts included, your dog could have run a coon up a tree and be barking, and he's going to steadily bark for an hour, two hours straight to get to it. Yes, ma'am. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, I've had dogs tree an hour and 45 minutes because the terrain in the swamp was so different that we just couldn't get to them. And they will literally, some, some dogs, they're, they're bred to do it so much that they will die at the tree. Wow. They have so much heart. I know they, they come from, they do. Well, they come from, they come from like way, way back. Yes. Like 16th century or something, isn't it? So they come from the English foxhounds, don't they? Yes, ma'am. Um, which, you know, growing up in the, in the British countryside, I have a fair bit of experience of them. Um, and that is, that's the thing with them, isn't it? It's, it's the stoicism. Yes. Like they will not give up. They will not give up. They will fight they to the death. They just will not. Yes, they ma'am. They really will. So when they find it, so when they find a raccoon up a tree and they're, and they're barking at them, waiting for you to get there, what happens then? Do you like shoot the raccoon? Or if, if what's, what's, well, what's there, the there's like? a lot of different training techniques out there. Uh, so I'll get into my training technique. The way I do it, mm-hmm. I just, it's so funny you asked that. I just made a video last night about it. And it's just a little uh, tips and tricks technique <laughs> deal on what I do. And what I do as puppies is I'll take a tennis ball and I find the one that has the prey drive. So the mm-hmm. one that has the most prey drive, I'll take a little bit of raccoon scent and I'll dab it just a touch. I don't mm-hmm. want a lot, just a touch. I'll take that yeah. ball and I'll throw it in there and I'll see which puppy is following that tennis ball around. When I see a puppy, I don't worry about a puppy that can run it up a tree. I worry about a puppy that can use the nose because if they can use the nose, they'll eventually figure out the tree because it's bred into them. So I'll take it, get them used to the tennis ball. By the time they get about six months old, that tennis ball is the funnest thing to play with in the world, but they're also used to that scent. So Mm -hmm. some folks will show them a live raccoon. In the last five years, I've yet to show any of my hounds live raccoon, and I have produced the best hounds I've ever had. But I've also introduced Omega-3 and Omega-6 with Comega. 
I play I play ball with them. It always has coon scent on it when I play with them. And it seems like when I take them to the woods, they smell better and they're automatic starters. And what I mean by automatic starters, sometimes we take a coon hound, we will release them with an older hound to train them how to do it. These puppies, the first time I cut them loose, they're running through there and treeing and running a raccoon up a tree by themselves the first time they've ever been to the woods. So That's something right, there is working. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it is. It's dopamine. And it's dopamine and it is um it's intrinsic reward. If you and, and this is the same in this country, you know, not so much anymore, but once upon a time you to the to the same sort of dogs, um, when they're young, when they start training, it, they would get fox cubs and chuck them in with them and you know, they just get torn to bits and it I don't really understand why they thought it was teaching them anything. Um, right. I think the theory was perhaps that it would create um some fox related bloodlust. I don't think that that is a is a way to teach a mammal because in what you're doing with play, what you're doing is you're is you're teaching them that it feels good in their brain, in their body chemistry, that what they're doing feels good, that they associate the scent that you're giving them with a nice feeling, with building a bond with you, with you smiling at them when they get it. It's bond related. You're part of that function. They learning to work for you. If you're just chucking livestock at a dog for it to kill, firstly, you've got an animal that is fighting for its life um, and the smell of that, that extreme cortisol is very confusing to a dog anyway, because an animal at the point of dying will not smell like an animal that is hiding up a tree, trying to be very quiet, trying not to be found. So for a start, what you're doing is you're comparing apples and pears. You're teaching them to go after something that, it's not it's not the same um the stress levels are actually quite inhibitive for learning so if you're chucking a live animal in that's that's going to be killed that knows it's going to be killed that's extremely stressed and you're subjecting that amount of stress to a puppy who is learning that puppy's going to get stressed as well because for all the puppy knows that animal could kill them it's just so much stress it's 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 to me it's, it's counterintuitive complete chaos yeah, chaos, chaos yes. no learning okay so um one of the things that i uh spend quite a lot of time doing as well as the nutrition is just helping dogs be the best that they can be um and a lot of that is teaching people to recognize the signs that they need to do something um before it becomes bad you know so um an intervention I'm talking about dogs that are stressed, traumatized dogs, whatever. Um, and so I talk a lot about um, how to how to live with them more harmoniously and reduce stress. And one of the things that I teach is how to smell stress on your dog. And it doesn't matter what the animal is. You'll know this because you've been around bulls and you've been around horses and you've been around dogs. When an animal is stressed, there's a smell. Even we can smell it. Um, it's slightly tangy if you've ever had to hold a stressed dog even at a vet's you know they, they start chucking out their hair they'll, they'll you know they'll, they'll, they'll molt they'll feel clammy people think the dogs can only sweat in their paws um they've got sweat glands elsewhere and they're primarily to to you know metabolize cortisol so you can smell it and if we can smell it then who knows what that smells like to a dog so if you're teaching a dog scent work to follow any sort of scent you you need to be explicit in that because the dog's nose is explicit it, it it's not smelling scent per se it's smelling compounds it's smelling hormones all of it it's a, it's a complete package of scent so if you're training a dog on an animal that is about to die close to death terrified especially raccoons, I mean, they'll let the anal glands go. There's all sorts of stink that goes on with an animal that is about to die. And we all know that from being around farm animals as well as being around wild animals and around dogs. So it's absolutely counterintuitive to train a dog on a distressed animal because it's not. that's not what you're asking it to do. You're not asking it to kill a coon in front of its face where 
it's stressful and chaotic, that's not what you're asking. So by doing that, what you're doing is you're introducing a smell, a scent that you're never going to ask for again. And that scent is completely overwhelming and it's coupled with a traumatic event, which means that the scent then becomes attached to a memory, which is held within the part of the brain called the amygdala. And in a hunting hound, the amygdala, the amygdala should be bypassed. So the scent should not be coming from that part of the memory. It shouldn't come from that part of the brain. It should come from a completely different part. So as well as messing up your dog's neurology in relation to scent, um, you're basically just teaching them the wrong thing. It's like, it's like asking them to do algebra. And then when it comes to the test, you're doing division. It, it's all mathematics. It's all math, but it's two different things. Does that, does that, that completely there? makes sense? That sounds like you're breaking the code to me. Um, <laughs> it really does. That's amazing. Well put how you just put that because I, I fully agree with everything you just said. I have been around horses and I've walked up to horses that have, um, never been able to be in their feet, be picked up or something like that. And I've walked up to that horse and you can literally smell, you can smell it. You can smell the fear. You can feel the fear. You can, you can, you can sense it. It's just a sense. And when you, and, and folks, this is not something that's learned overnight. This is something that takes time and you, you got to really spend time with that animal and really be in tune. That's when I say you're really in tune with, with mother nature per se. Is it when you can start really sensing things like that, that is a special art and a special skill. Uh, it is something that is learned. <laughs> and it's like we were saying before, the people who do train this way, they're not winning. They're not. You're not going to. And, and, and What's the point in it anyway? <laughs> well, I've seen, uh, and, and another reason why I want to touch on this subject, I see a lot of, I actually even get questions like this. I want to start my puppy. I want to start my puppy. What, what age do I start my puppy? Well, that is when you get them in your hands. <laughs> that's when you start with your puppy. The moment you get that puppy, I feel that's when the training starts. It starts with playing ball getting the game drive out of them, see what kind of game drive they have. You can do so much with a tennis ball that yeah. it's amazing. I can put a string through a tennis ball and run that tennis ball up the tree and hang it in a tree. As long as he thinks that scent is going up that tree, in my perspective, I always felt like that he was just doing what it was natural. He was following his scent. So therefore, yeah. I, didn't, I shouldn't say I don't ever kill them. There is farmers that need my help, and I go mm -hmm. out there and I take care of a problem that they have. But I have noticed that with young dogs, especially when you're taking a young dog and you shoot a raccoon out of that tree and it hits the ground and you introduce that young dog over there to a live animal on the ground that is in fear for its life and he catches that coon, you're introducing a whole bombshell of things that could happen there. Number one, your dog could get hurt. Number two, I did not know. And I should have known about exactly what you explained earlier about the smell. It didn't, I've never really triggered in my brain about that. Uh, when an animal's fighting for its life, that is a very, very bold and strong, beautiful statement that you made there. And I'm glad you've made that because that needs to be known folks. When you shoot an animal, the smell changes because you're introducing anal glands, urine, things that a dog's not normally tracking. So, sometimes Miss Holly, we're just, they're simply tracking a, a footprint. You know what I mean? exactly so, um and it's the it's the elements of those isn't it that it's the elements of, of that scent that they're picking so if they're they're tracking a footprint that's far and away different from from anything else it's not tracking scat it's not anything else it's literally tracking the the minute secretions that come from that animal's scent glands on its feet mainly right. its back feet right clever yeah. dogs it's really, it's a really a cool, and there's so many sports that I think people could learn from this. I guess where it comes from, I naturally, you want to go in there. You want to reward the animal for what he produced for you. I understand that. But if I can go and I can reward my animal and also keep that animal there for future purposes to train more, <laughs> why, why would I uh, sh shoot them or kill them if they're not a nuisance? And I can use yep. that same animal to keep training more and more puppies with. And that animal's not a very good reward anyway, is it? No, now it's, especially <laughs> now you put it like that. Eat it? No, but not particularly good eating. Um, you're going to let it 
rip it up and shake it to death? Well, it's not. Well, I, I feel a like great reward. I feel like what you're introducing there is. I've seen dogs get viciously aggressive towards other dogs that normally are never aggressive. And I have mm -hmm. always felt, especially now that I've matured, I've always felt like that maybe the dogs fighting the raccoon is teaching them more aggression. I was going to say is it's um, introducing a dynamic of kill or be killed because the dog doesn't know that the raccoon is unlikely to kill it. All the dog sees is another um, kind of predatory animal. Again, you'll know this from horses and cows. So predatory animals, eyes in the front of the head. Prey animals, eyes in the side of the head. A raccoon still has its eyes in the front of the head. It looks a bit like a cat. Cats are vicious. Um, raccoons can be vicious. It, you, you know, the, the dog hasn't been taught from small to defend itself from scary-looking animals that are fighting for their lives. That's a, a whole different skill. You're not breeding one of those kind of dogs. So when you do introduce that, all you're doing is creating a trauma. You put in that dog in a situation where it is threatened maybe not from death but the dog doesn't know that certainly from harm could definitely get an eye taken out could def definitely get a bite and get an infection and be unwell from that like it, it's just unnecessary it's just adding an unnecessary life experience to a dog that all it does is create more negativity the reason why after a situation like that the dog then goes and has a go at other animals is because firstly it takes two to three days for that adrenaline to come back down so the dog is thinking having this in the forebrain that the, this terrible experience has, has happened where it felt threatened um of of hurt or harm and so for three days after that, while the adrenaline's coming down and it's pondering on this, this experience, everything then is a threat because you've changed its whole world. You've turned its life upside down. You've, you, as the person that's supposed to protect that animal, have introduced a threat. So when's the next threat going to come? You're dealing with a hypervigilant animal. It's just, it, it, of course, it's going to fight another dog. Because so what, so what we're doing, time, we're, just, yeah. we're just building. We're building. Mm -hmm. We're building aggression. Yeah. So cool. Called trigger stacking. That is so neat. Ruins, ruins a dog. Ruins a dog. That is so neat. So, you've ruined the thing that it loves, haven't you? Uh, well, it gives me a whole new outlook on on the whole scent hound. It it, it really does. Mm -hmm. it, and 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 the killing aspect. And folks, we're we're not here being anti hunting anything or anti kill anything. <laughs> That's we're, that's that's just silly. What we're explaining here is the truth, and what we're trying to explain is in depth what you're doing to your dogs when you're in do, introducing them to high stress situations. And when you in, introduce them to a high stress situation, just like a human response, it's fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And you can have an adrenaline dump, and things go really bad. And I've seen dogs mm -hmm. do that, and hog dogs, and whatever you do. If you build that up, I feel like you're creating a bomb to go off. Yeah, you are. And if you do it enough times, the the dog's going to learn the response that best suits itself. And what you get then is this independent mindset. And I like my dogs to be independent. I like them to be free thinking. I like all of that. But what I need from them is when stuff goes down, and they do have a panic because, you know, life happens. It's not all to do with the hunting. Just sometimes life happens and you, you need them to look to you for how to handle a situation. If you keep putting them in traumatic situations, even micro traumas or whatever you want to call it, and they develop a way of dealing with that. It means they're not looking to you. And it means that when you need them to listen to you, to keep them and possibly yourself safe, if, they're, if they've already got a strategy for what they do when they feel that way, then you're in a sticky situation. does nothing for your relationship with your dog. Um, that's what I expect from, from my dogs. Um, you know, when something uncertain happens, I expect them to look at me for instruction. I don't want them to handle that themselves. They, they look to me to be handling that situation. That's you, what said, the, you, you said something yeah. very, very, very interesting. You said independent. Now, independent mm. is a very, very strong word in the coonhound world. Mm. So Because they are independent dogs. Well, years ago, they were known to be pack dogs. They would turn three or four together in a competition hunt, usually all three mm -hmm. or four. 
so in a competition hunt, there's four co- four dogs on average, three to four dogs per cast. So there can be a cast as four dogs. Those four dogs hunt against each other. Now, mm-hmm. used to, from what my dad said in the older days, some of the dogs, usually they would pretty much all tree together. They would all mm-hmm. run the raccoon together and tree together. They're pack, pack animals. But yeah. we've noticed over the past 10, 15 years, we've evolved into more of an independent dog. Now you've mm-hmm. said independent and you like an independent dog. What do you, cause this is interesting. What, what do you like about an independent dog and how do you train an independent dog in herding? What makes that independence? <laughs> so it, it's part of your, I think it comes, it comes down to your bond firstly. Um, and it's, it's what you, it's what you trust them to do. So I've got, I've got six dogs, um, two, two of them. Uh, a reasonable at work i mean we're not competing we're not doing anything one of them is is very handy on the farm in the pens pushing up um at lambing time handling single sheep and, and lambs he's very good at that he likes working very close by me um and so he's not a very independent dog he likes instructions bit by bit um to train independence you're basically just increasing the distance so you get them to work away from you and then you allow them to use their instincts to a certain point. So if they use their natural instinct and it's something nice that you want to see, you tell them nice, that's it, nice, there, yes. A really affirmative single word that lets them know, oh, that's free thinking that I just did, that pleased my person. And that's what you want to teach him. Every time they do something that pleases you, you tell them so. And when you tell them so, because they're bred to please you, I mean, the border collies, they're, they're literally, they're the most bum-sucking animal, honestly. They, they're just massive suck-ups. They just want to please you all the time. So how you do that is when they do something that you like, you tell them so. Um, in terms of independence, so Flynn, who I was just talking about, he's not a good example because he's quite, he likes to stay close, close by. Um, and he likes to work small numbers of sheep. My bitch, Ren, absolute opposite. She is 100% independent. She doesn't like doing close work because it means I talk at her more and she'd rather not. She'd rather not hear from me. Um, she likes to work the hills. So um, we don't have mountains here in the UK, but we have what we call hills, which are just, um, I guess you would call them uh, like ranges, like like grassland, um, prairie type uh, right terrain so she's independent because when i go up a hill and i want her to find sheep the first thing she does is she's she's stood still her tail is all the way under and i know that she's listening for a sheep um it's a huge area and her ears are like radars and her nose is up and she finds where they are and then without me at all she goes and gets them so that's how she's independent off she goes i can't see her i can't hear her she's gone and then, you know, half an hour later or whatever, she comes back with a flock of sheep. You can do that whilst keeping an eye on her um, as well. But that independence has come from every time she has displayed something that has been inherently bred for, that she, um, that she, that she has practiced in a, a variety of situations. It means that she's learned her job. So that independence comes from learning the job, knowing the job. And it's a, it's a really long process. I mean, she's coming up six, I think now. Um, and I can, I can have that. I can have that with her. I can trust her that she's just going to go off up the hill, gather some sheep and bring them back. Um, so I mean that by independence, although really, I suppose what we're talking about is autonomy because we're a team. It's for both of us. It's not like I'm not there at all. And if, she couldn't find a sheep if she was having a drama one of the things that we can teach them is speak up which is a little bit like what you do with your hands so if she gets stuck if there's a sheep that's giving a bother she'll speak up she'll she'll sound off and then i'll have to go and find her and see what the drama is and help her so she's working autonomously she's being independent but we're still a team and she still knows she can't handle everything herself and that's why i'm there um so I would say that's what I mean by independence. It's not that your dog is taking all of the decisions themselves. 
It's that you've taught them good decision making. Gotcha. I love it. I love that. That is so cool. Uh, I see a lot of, a lot of great handlers out there with a lot of great independent dogs and they win with them. And one of the main things I see between some of the winning dogs out there and that are consistently winning is the bond between the man and the dog. That bond is inseparable and you can hear it when you talk about them and they love those dogs. They ride in the front seat of their trucks. <laughs> you know, we love them. We give them pup Don't cups, pup <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, it's so cool to be able to, to, to listen to your knowledge about this. Yeah. If you were to give someone at home some great advice that has a scent town and they want to cook from home for them, what would you recommend? Okay. Um, so it, can you hear him? He's so rude. Okay. So you're going to be expending a lot. Well, you're not. Your dog's going to be expending a lot of energy. So they're going to need a high energy feed. Um and one that's not going to upset their gut, and one that you can adjust the fat content. Because really what's going to be important for them is the fat. So when you're feeding um, a dog that's, say, sprinting, so greyhounds, racing whippets, um, coursing dogs, uh, dogs that have maybe greyhound in them, which means that they have the fast twitch muscle, that means that they're going to go through glycogen, so glucose, carbs really quickly so for those you want to feed them a more kind of carb-based diet obviously no not carb-based you need a meat-based diet but you need a source of carbs in there for them before dogs like your hunting hounds that are going to be um doing um, endurance and um, they run better on fat um and you might see that in play when you get to the end of a, a competition or or the end of an activity um once your dog has has kind of calmed down from the excitement of the scent and everything else sometimes particularly on the back legs you see a tremor very slight um and people are like oh the dog's really excited but once the excitement has calmed down and that tremor is still present it's actually not excitement what the dog is doing is it's utilizing adipose tissue which is the brown fat that sits underneath the skin by causing that little vibration what they're doing is they're utilizing energy from fat um, so that means that the muscle glycogen that's that's run down. So the energy stores within the muscles that's run down. The energy stores within the liver again that's glycogen that's run down. So if they've got a tremor there, it means that they're utilizing brown fat, adipose fat. Um, it's not the best state to have your dog in when they've really really run as hard as they possibly can for a long time. It's kind of unavoidable, um, but you want to kind of fix that quite quickly, um, or you want to reduce uh the likeliness of that happening so you do that with a feed i mean what do you what do you feed your dogs is it, is so, it kibble do you feed them raw I, I feed a kibble i feed diamond mm -hmm. diamond um naturals chicken rice right. is what i feed mm -hmm. uh and mm -hmm. i also get the omega-3 it's called mm -hmm. co omega or comega excuse yeah. me comega with a high omega-3 and it's high on omega-6 with a couple mm -hmm. other little small things now it's made for horses but it's more of an all-around supplement sheep goats yeah, yeah. but it's I really use, I really use loads of horse supplements you've got really? to when you've got lots of dogs and big dogs i just use horse supplements it and works out it, more cost effective and it's the same and a lot of folks don't know horse supplements there's some very useful horse supplements you can use on dogs yeah definitely and yeah. um, any any kind of uh, omega oils for sure um you can you can run a dog on, say, uh, you can add flax, the same as what you would add for horses. It's a good source of energy um, if you soak it. So, flax, flax. I think you call it linseed. Yeah, we, flax seed. We call it flax seed. Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, that's something that you can add. It's not um, mainly for the fats that it contains um, and some of the proteins as well. So, to, to get into it, um, I would, I would feed a 50, 50 diet, um, that's, that's high in fat. So you can do that on percentage of body weight for your dog. So, um, I work in kilograms and things, uh, which is going to make my brain explode, possibly trying to figure <laughs> it out. Um, <laughs> so what you would do, you would, you would do 1% of your dog's body weight 
of the dry weight of oats. And that's just porridge oats, you know, like Quaker oats? Yes, ma'am. Um, so start with that, and that's 1% of your dog's body weight. And then to that, you would add 1% of your dog's body weight of meat. Um, for for being cost-effective, actually, you probably wouldn't really need to cook it. You, if you can get beef tripe, so raw green beef tripe, um, it's high in fat. The calcium-phosphorus ratio of that is balanced. Um, it's really easily digested as well, um, and it's not too expensive. Um, you know, if you're using, you know, meat from from the supermarket it's going to get really expensive but you could if you wanted to you could use fattier cuts of beef um you know you need that fat in there um, and that would be fed at one percent of your dog's body weight as well um and then to that you would add if we're, t- if we're, if we're talking then um, you know a dog the size of, of your hounds yeah he's so about 80 that, you would add, 87 90 pounds yeah so to that you would add two or three eggs um, you can cook them you can boil them you can just give them raw um i would add two tins of sardines to that as well but i think you it might not be something that's as common over there for you oh we have a lot of sardines oh yes oh you do yes um that's good of course because you need the sea aren't you um so sardines yep so 0.5 percent of the body weight in sardines and then on top of that, you need to add um, an oil. So I use olive oil or flaxseed oil. Um, and you need to judge how your dog tolerates that. So you would start off with um, maybe a, a tablespoon of oil per sort of 40 pounds. Um, so your dog would have two tablespoons. And then... If that's tolerated well, what you can do is you can adjust that. So if you know they've got a really busy day coming up, you just give them more oil and that's going to fuel them. It's going to give them, um, you know, that that endurance type of energy from the fats. Uh, You can also use um, what I was talking about before, the MCT oil, because that helps with their brain health as well. It's really well studied in dogs. um, And that is is MCT. Okay. Awesome. Uh, medium chain triglyceride oil, and you can find that the best place to find that for a good price would be at um, like fitness stores, health stores, bodybuilders, and the likes. They use that. Awesome. Um, so that's a really good oil to use, and that's just a, a fairly easy recipe. Really, it's just oats, sardines, eggs, oil, and tripe, um, or any other kind of ground beef. If your dog's a little bit more sensitive, you could use ground turkey. If you're using ground turkey or ground chicken, then then cook it. If you're using the beef tripe, that's usually raw, so you don't have to cook that. Um, and that's a really good, easy mix to sustain the dogs. You can give the oats um, as they are. You can uh, soak them in cold water overnight, or you can make it up as it is using um, boiling water, so it just sort of cooks them a little bit. And do whatever suits your dog. Um, so that is kind of a very easy, very basic, um, easily adjustable recipe for a working dog food. Um, and actually, it's what all mine are on at the minute. The other thing about that is it's, it's balanced. So um, I put all these ingredients into a spreadsheet um, and calculate the protein, the fat, the carbohydrate content, the calorie content per 100 grams or per 1,000 calories, whatever it is, um, and then all the micronutrients as well that they need, that's all in there too. And specifically because you're using um, beef tripe and because you're using oats, um, the manganese content in that is really good. When you have a working dog that's going over rough terrain, you need a good source of manganese in the diet. Um, one of the, the biggest things that will take a dog out of work will be uh joint problems not necessarily arthritis wear and tear but if your dog is going up big hills going over rough ground sometimes the thing that will end that dog's career will be a a, an acl tear so my dog's been so naughty um (laughs) so yeah that that uh that ligament the cruciate ligaments um that's becoming more of a problem in working dogs for when they injure that because it's very hard to treat. You can have surgery. It's not always successful. Um, but they've found that one of the links between that injury and nutrition is a lack of manganese. Um, and that diet that I've just explained ticks all the boxes for that. 
It's really neat you say that. So in Florida, we're we're really a flat land, swamp land, kind of a just a marsh land. When we take mm-hmm. our hand our hounds north, we'll get up into the hills of Indiana, Ohio, and it's more hills, mountains, West Virginia's mountains, stuff like that. I have noticed with my hounds, just as you say, they they're almost like an athlete. If they're not trained in that area, they're not used to that area, you'll end up with tears. You have to boost that diet mm-hmm. and that nutrition level to keep up with what you're expecting to go up against. Um, yeah. So what I did is um, I, what I did it specifically is when I was traveling, I always upped the omegas and the fats. I yeah, always upped it. And, well, and, and I noticed that the, the stamina of the dogs when I traveled, it never seemed to differ when I traveled. They just always seemed to go, but I always increased it when I traveled. And I, I find it very intriguing that you say that as well, because I did notice a huge difference of performance in different regions. Yeah. And a cruciate tear is something that's very common in a coonhound industry. Very common. Is it? Yes, yeah, because I, I would think it's because of the terrains. And I would also think maybe it's improper nutrition as well. Some of it, you know, not mm-hmm. all of us feed the best feeds. I've been guilty of it as well. And I, mm-hmm. that's why I have you on here. I want to learn and I want to know. What can we do to help everyone out here give your dogs the best diet, period? Now, what are some other – let's do some top five recommendations. Let's do some top fives. Okay, so uh, I, I touched on it before. But my my number one easy, easy thing to do to really boost your, your dog's diet is is add an egg. It's so it's so easy. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people have hens because, um, you know, keeping dogs, keeping other animals just all – we all got them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, e- easiest thing is add an egg or two a day. Um, the nutritional benefits of that it is absolutely com- an egg is a complete food. It has all of the amino acids in it. If you're feeding the shell as well, um, some dogs like to munch on the shell, then it's a source of calcium. The membrane within the egg um, very specifically um, is like a superfood in terms of protecting a dog's joints, the cartilage, eggshell membrane. You can buy it. You can buy eggshell membrane. Um, but just feeding feeding an egg a day, hundred um, percent. So that's number one is eggs. Wow. Number two, and um, when I was talking about this recipe as well before, um, that kind of encompasses a lot of the things that I I would say to give. So number two is sardines. Right at the beginning, we were talking about that omega three to six balance. If you're feeding bluefish, so sardines, little oily fish, they're really high in um, omega-3. So just with that, you're going to tip the balance. Um, you know, you're not going to be all the way into therapeutic levels, but you're certainly improving on a diet that doesn't have them. So eggs number one, bluefish number two, and you can feed them every day. Um it's better to feed uh, bluefish cooked because they're quite high in a compound called thiaminase. And what that does is thiaminase will block the absorption of thiamine. Um, and your scent dogs need thiamine. That's what keeps the, the brain healthy. Um, it's really important for cognition. So if you're going to feed um, bluefish regularly, it's probably a good idea to cook them. If it's just kind of two, three times a week, you don't need to. So number two would be sardines. And make uh, sure they're cooked. <laughs> and make sure they're cooked. Yeah. That's right. Um, number three would be... Hmm. Let me think. Gotcha. Well, gotcha, <laughs> you did. You did. Well, oh, it's a little bit airy-fairy, but um, I'm a big fan of herbs as well. And one of the herbs that... Um, I really think every dog should have in their diet. It's chamomile. Oh, yeah. Um, again, I get this from horsey places because otherwise you're going to have to buy chamomile tea um, and that can get expensive and a bit of a faff. But dried chamomile, basically, the dried herb. So what this does um, is it helps with the regulation of gut motility. Um, so what that means is for a hunting dog, they can get quite excited. Um, there's, there's no dog likes pooping more than a hunting dog. Um, <laughs> That's true. I've noticed. I mean, my dog gets excited. Exactly. And that's fine. But sometimes um, 
you need to regulate that a little bit. Firstly, for the uptake of nutrients, you know, these dogs can be quite hard to keep weight on sometimes because they're expending so much. Um, and the second thing about that is um, chamomile helps relax smooth muscle. And when you want a dog to concentrate and engage, particularly following a scent, um, you need that state of mind. You need them to be relaxed and engaged. The adrenaline can be there because sometimes adrenaline can be a positive thing for that forward drive, but you don't want it to cloud their judgment. You don't want it to affect them listening to you and doing what you want them to do. So chamomile can help with that. It can just help take the edge off. Like, yes, hunting's exciting. Yes, you're doing what you, you love to do, but tone it down a little bit. Um, chamomile is very good for that. So it helps regulate the gut motility in terms of uptaking nutrients effectively, particularly B12, which a lot of our hunting dogs can be short in just because um, they use so much of it when they're doing these, these long distance and endurance sports. Um, and then, yeah, just to get them thinking correctly as well. And also they work hard. Their muscles work hard. Like you said, tough terrain. I mean, swamp, really tough terrain. You're going to pull themselves through all of that resistance. And then if you're going north, then they're in terrain that's, that's different. It uses a lot of proprioceptive muscles, and in particular the core, because they have to keep themselves upright. And what chamomile does is it helps, uh, helps relax smooth muscle. So it's just like, say, when you've been to the gym um, or you've been exercising or whatever and you feel a bit tight, um, it can help just just relax those muscles so they feel a little bit more comfortable as well. So chamomile is my number two, three. What, my own? Three. Three. <laughs> what about... So um, chamomile is my number three. What about... You know, I, got a, I do have a question for you. I used to have a dog, and I, I don't have him no more, but he used to cramp on me real bad. And I started getting potassium and yeah. he stopped cramping, but they said you had to be careful yeah. with the potassium. You do have to be careful with potassium. Um, you can give uh, something like um, you can give potassium citrate quite safely. That's fine. Um, and you can buy that just as, as a, a human supplement. So potassium citrate as a human supplement, you know, just, just the ones that you buy um, for a dog like yours, you can give the same, amount as you as, as the dosage for a human person on, on the instructions you can do that that's absolutely fine um magnesium is also very helpful and again magnesium citrate you can give alongside the uh, potassium citrate both of these things are very helpful but the biggest thing really um i call it tying up when a dog ties up when they cramp quite badly um hydration is is the best thing for that um and i tend to use uh oh which brings us swiftly into number four. Number four is excellent hydration. Now, you were saying about giving dogs a good drink before you set them away. Um, I do the same. The mix that I use um, is half goat's milk, raw goat's milk. If you can get the raw stuff, even better. Um, but half oh, goat's I can. milk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can. <laughs> um, do. And, and do, if you, and, and for anyone else, if you can get raw goat's milk, um, give that to your dog as, as often as you like um you know soak their food in it just give it them it's so good for them um so before i run a dog i give them half i make up um let's say a liter so half goat's milk half water um and to that i put a pinch of pink salt maybe like half a teaspoon of himalayan pink salt um and then a good tablespoon of honey give it a good shake up um and i give that to them um, goat's milk has got very little fat in it, so it's not going to have that action that we talked about before of coating the mouth and affecting the scent. The honey that's in there gives them a nice little boost for when they first get going when you set them free. So I would say that. I would say my number four is is a, a good rehydration drink. And I, I find it interesting you, you threw honey in there because I, I have a friend of mine that's an auctioneer, and he, mm. he uses honey to soothe his throat. So I have a dog, Cheddar, uh, that you love. Everybody, everyone here I love loves Cheddar. it. I lose my baby. Um, but Cheddar, after you hunt three or four nights, he's so loud that he strains yeah. his vocal cords. And so what I, I started too. doing is I started giving him honey. And yeah. it stopped, completely stopped. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a good anti-inflammatory action for the throat. The other thing that you can do actually for that, um, which probably isn't on the top five, but worth noting because i didn't realize until you said earlier that they bark consistently for so long waiting for you to get to them um you know that's 
I can imagine that they do kind of get quite sore. So one of the things that you can you can do for dogs that might get a sore throat is um, marshmallow root tea. You'll be able to get that um, in in a little tea bag, and you literally just make the tea marshmallow root tea bag in a cup, boiling water on, um, let it cool completely, squeeze the tea bag out, and then put that on their food. Um, and what that does is it helps coat the throat. That's so it'll soothe it. So you can do that. Um, what did I get up to? Number four? Number five? Number, number five. five. Number five. Here number we go. Five. Oh, I would say a good source of vitamin C. So that can be anything, really, anything you like. Um, blueberries are good. Cranberries are good. Uh, rose hips are good. So any sort of high vitamin C berry that you can add into your dog's diet is is a good idea. And you can you can use the dried powders if you want. Um, the reason for that is when they're doing the work that they do, they're creating a lot of muscle byproducts um, and free radicals. And adding a, a source of vitamin C um, is introducing an antioxidant that will help level all that out um it just it helps with the oxidative stress um that of the dogs um will be getting from from the work that they do um and also one of the i don't bit of a random one but what is it that ends your dog's lives that sounds so so dark but i know know a lot of agility dogs and at the end of the life it's their kidneys usually with us it's it's hips and joint issues yeah what, it would it would definitely what, have to be what's the, what's the reason yeah. it, i would yeah. say i would say it's because they cover so much territory i would say that mm. hips and joints these dogs cover a lot of ground and and oh. that's a lot and you're talking about in a lot of farm terrain ups and downs swampy nasty stuff a lot of trees that are down that's a long ways to be hunting that's a long yeah, ways so i mean they really have a lot okay. of wear and tear so I suppose our top five then adjusts for for the for the people that follow you on on what is important. So our priority then for the the types of dogs that you're looking at is going to be protecting the hips. So when I talk about vitamin C, that still counts. So a source of antioxidants, vitamin C, that's fine. That still counts. Everything else that was on the list goes towards that. Um, but I suppose that kind of brings us on to supplements, doesn't it? Um, so for your dogs, the the most important supplement will be a joint care. Um, there's lots of different joint cares. It's really, really popular. Um, it's a big industry in, in dog care to have these really expensive joint supplements. But then you need a joint care that has um, MSM, Rosehip, Boswellia and glucosamine and chondritin in there um my second supplement would be um and i'm absolutely uh, under the thumb of this company <laughs> they're called antinol um and that's an omega-3 supplement it's green lip muscle and it's been extracted into a capsule form so it's really concentrated a really high dose um of omega-3 um what am i on number three number three supplement number three yes ma'am number three <laughs> Um, I should have prepared better, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> You're, you've done I fine. I, I get I get asked all this all the time. I totally know, but now I'm changing my mind a little bit. Um, so uh, time, just the normal herb time. Um, again, good for joint care, good for stiff muscles. Um, it helps with the immune system. You know, when you're out in, I mean. Swamps are a bit gross, aren't they? They're nasty. They're, they're not, yeah. Um, so having time there just helps with uh, supporting the immune system and kind of helping fight off any uh, kind of bacteria and viruses and things like that that you might come across in um, in the course of your work. So time's a good one. Beef collagen. Um, you can just you can just buy beef collagen. That one's fine. It's dead easy. Just chuck a scoop into your dog's feed. Um, you can get it in loads of 
different places. It doesn't have to be um, a dog specific one. Just get a college. That's my neighbor's drilling. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, you can get, yeah. So you can get a, a, a collagen complex. So you need type one, two, and three collagen. Um, beef collagen is absolutely fine. And, and yeah, you can just chuck that into your dog's feed. So all of that will help keep your dog's joints well because that's obviously something that you're gonna you're gonna need to address if that's the thing that one of the things that I do when I consult and when I talk to people is as morbid as it is I ask what in your sport is the thing that most commonly ends your dog's life um, and that way we can work to work towards that it's obviously if that's yeah. the thing that causes the end of your dog's life then that's the thing that needs addressing the most folks you heard it here Miss Holly Barker <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview. We're going to make this happen again. It is an honor talking to you. Folks, please like, comment below. Tell me what you like about this interview. Thank you so much, Holly. Big shout out from the oh, States. We appreciate you here. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye. Like, share, and subscribe to the channel and stay tuned for more content from Hunter's Wheelhouse.